0: Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You might want to take out the psalm. It provides a kind of thread through today's talk. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We're speaking today of life and death. And how often we speak of life and death. This is a matter of life and death. How many times in a day do I hear myself saying that? You often hear it cloaked in a phrase like this. My life depends upon this. Or we're, we're dead if we don't get this thing fixed in the next ten minutes. Or, in a good outcome, you've saved my life. I owe you my life for this. And so on. Now, Life is stressful in the fast lane in the west, faster in the east, I dare say, almost anywhere on the globe today. There is a sense of urgency, almost panic, certainly manic, in just getting through the day. Which means getting yourself to the metro station, getting your kids to soccer or ballet, getting through the checkout line at Trader Joe's in time to get dinner started, Getting through the line in line, we're getting online in time enough to get through the line in line, online. <laughs> there Never seems to be enough time, and it's always a matter of life and death. Transactions are handled under increasingly frenzied pressure, and in the background, if we pause to listen, the clock is always ticking 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 off the seconds of lives that, too, are winding down, being ground down by the weight of making it through another day, no, through the next five minutes, no, through the next five seconds. Life and death. Now, if you have had the experience of going from life to death, and I trust back again, or even heard of someone who has been involved in maybe getting someone else through that transition, in a real life, real life and death situation, there is often no stress at all. There is quite simply no time to get stressed out. You see what is happening and you have leapt into action before you have a millisecond to determine how you think or feel, let alone your chances of making a difference when you get there. It's like something or someone simply steps in and takes over. We hear this again and again, say, from people who've jumped in to rescue somebody from someone and found strength that they simply didn't know they had, but who would never have tried it if they'd had a second to think about it. You find out when it's all over, and life has actually been plucked from the jaws of death, what you were up against and what you did in spite of it. But while it is all happening, it was as if you were on automatic pilot, pure act with just the slightest hint that you were somewhere outside yourself watching events unfold, an eerie sense, an otherworldly sense of timelessness, order, and calm. Now, I am not about to use this to show how really trivial our concerns really are, how shallow, how unindicative they are of reality. Indeed, I am suggesting that there's a very real sense of what it means to live a life which is defined and bounded by death in the way we live out our lives each day. A death which can strike at any moment, crossing our path with that line in the sand, a very real sense of what is very really impinging so rarely on our consciousness that we live Facing death, maybe, at any moment. We are creatures whose lives are defined by death. Jesus, however, comes to proclaim a whole different way of living. A life lived as if death were not, or at least as if death itself had died, been put out of its misery, had been shut down, was under new management. What does it mean to live If you like, as if our lives were defined by death. We hear a lot today about the nihilistic hopelessness of today's world, a world which is in active rejection of Christ. We see a world in which people are going through that valley of the shadow of death, either stopped in their tracks, in despair, maybe conjecturing some immortality of the soul. People who are filled with passionate intensity living out the dream of creating utopian paradises. Death is governing them. Death is defining them at both ends of the spectrum. You see it most clearly, I think, in some of the tendencies of today's world, the secular paradise which we are being ushered into. We have people in despair of anything but hoping against hope that somehow they will be saved, that there will be found a cure for all the diseases that can afflict us by cloning, cannibalizing, and discarding embryonic human beings. Others hope that we will find a cure for everything that afflicts the planet by aborting children in the womb. The premeditated killing of innocent human beings is the essential ingredient in the utopian dreams of the transformation of society of so many who seek to shape this culture of death a little strong, perhaps. But I think if we take a deep breath in our rush through the day, we can see these elements crystallizing. We don't have really a sense of what the resurrection of the body really means, even in church. The sense that somehow this axis runs between the father and son, as Hans Urs von Balthasar describes and in this energy which flows between these two co-creators out of chaos of the world, there is an energy which death interrupts, but which only those two together can reestablish. Death is, if you like, brought into the equation by Jesus, and life is brought back from death for us by Jesus. We meet this Jesus today as the Good Shepherd, the Shepherd of His sheep. Despised in everyday life, shepherds loom large in our sacred texts. We have the figure of David, perhaps quintessentially, who is both shepherd and king. And as king, he is the one to whom obedience owed as a matter of life and death. This is the king, you obey him and from whom protection is owed to his subjects as a matter of life and death. And God is diligent to remind David of when he has crossed that line, murdered his own subjects, sparing his life, but promising him that there will be consequences. Remember that relationship hierarchically. Subjects owe their king obedience. The king owes the subject's protection for life. And it's a matter of life and death. It's therefore significant when Jesus, at the beginning of chapter 10 of John's gospel, assumes the title, the good shepherd for himself. I am the good shepherd, he says. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them, life and death. The shepherd draws the sheep to where they will find abundant life in green pastures, as our beautiful psalm has said. He makes me lie down in green pastures, leads me beside still waters. He shall refresh my soul. And the shepherd also protects the flock from predators. You spread a table before me in the presence of those who trouble me. In the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. We see another element In today's chapter and that is the sheepfold the temporary or permanent enclosure which shepherds constructed to fence in the flock for a time protecting them from predators now you can't live in a sheepfold there's no pasture there you have to be led out or allowed to come out and find life but it is a place of protection as long as the gate is closed Jesus has described himself as the gate of the sheepfold, the one through whom the flock would gain access to the fold, the one through whom the flock will be set free when the coast is clear, and the one who will sacrifice his own life, if necessary, to deny access to the ravages of the evil one. I know my own, and my own know me, and I lay down my life for the sheep. The letter of John continues, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Enclosure, safety, protection, in which Jesus himself, his body, becomes that haven that the sheepfold had been. Whoever keeps his commandments, whoever shows him loyalty and obedience as king, abides in God, and God abides in him. Obedience and protection again. The flock owe their shepherd obedience. The shepherd owes the flock their lives, even at the cost of his own. Abides, dwells, but the obligation, the rent we pay, if you like, for abiding in our earthly dwelling is obedience to his commandments. And these commandments are, and I quote, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as we say at every service, love God, believe in God, love one another, just as he has commanded us. Now, I often find myself asking in real life, can we go for more believing and ease off on the loving? (laughs) I know which I find a little easier. Well, not that belief is easy, but I am often happier to withdraw to the tower uh, than go out into the valley and face the blessing that I find in the community. Jesus' answer to me is clear. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, they will be done soon, but in deed and in truth. Very clear and simple line of thought. We saw it last week, too. Serving God, which means serving others versus serving self. Loving God, which means loving others versus loving self. Now, why do the deeds of love come hard? Why, when we see someone in need, do we so easily draw back, almost instinctively? Why can it be said of some of us all of the time, and of all of us some of the time, that we wouldn't part with that which was ours if our lives depended on it. The grip on that which is ours, our next dollar or our next minute or our next forkful of food or sip of chai latte, the next minute of peace and quiet that I might have before my lovely daughter comes up the stairs with some request or other, is as if our next breath would be our last and invariably... I respond to interruptions, which are God's divine appointments, with a sense that it's this is it. What am I going to do? How will I recover this chain of thought that I was pursuing? How will I continue to weave the seamless robe of my own life? This life, bounded by death, is defined, therefore, by death. Looking at our lives and these readings, in the light of the resurrection, however, we are invited to look at life and death differently. In this life, we often feel ourselves set over and against everything, everyone, that gets in between us and the goal we are to achieve. If the success of the survival series is any indication This is not a perception which is limited to a few neurotics or recovering neurotics like me. It is the neurosis of our time. Survival, the survival of the fittest, is linked in our minds with the possibility, the necessity of somehow surviving death as much as we are able by grasping onto life so that no one and nothing can wrench it from our hands We nourish the hope that maybe we, at the end, can outsmart death, achieve immortality somehow through our works, uh, through our thoughts, through our love, maybe, through our children, or at least stare death down. We extend this, indeed, to the way we relate to our work, to our families, our spouses, our children, trying on the one hand to live through them, Manipulate them, control them, so that we can live our lives through them and indeed even grasp immortality through them. And we extend this to our relationship with Jesus. Even though he has guaranteed us life beyond the grave, we seek to enlist our Lord in our continuing struggle with this world. We just won't let go. Roman Catholic theologian, Dominican, actually, James Allison writes, and I quote, The picture of the risen Lord we often have in our hearts is a very judgmental one. Himself a brandisher of vengeance, risen from beyond the grave to vindicate victims like ourselves and shaking the mighty power of his awful word at the powers that be. Through some miracle maybe the death of one we love or some kind of significant loss. It always seems to involve loss, I'm afraid. We are forced to confront ourselves, the Jesus who seeks us and seeks us not just to confront us, but to comfort us, to let go of that which gave us the false hope of defeating death and to surrender. Then, Jesus surprises us. He does not back away in dismay, but he holds us. He embraces us. He carries us on his shoulders like that beautiful painting by Joel Sheesley, showing the risen Christ with the lamb. The self-image we cling to, our mask to the world, our mask of strength and confidence and control melts away with the mask our identity that which we thought that we were which we have fought for every minute of our lives dies too the world of we's and they's of us versus the world begins to melt away too all this jesus does so that we too may have our resurrection so that a new we may be born, a we not over against anyone at all, but a we that is being called at every moment into being, called into that great dance of life with which Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have created this world and are constantly transfiguring this world into the new creation. By this, we are able to hear the shepherd's voice and enter the door, for he too has been given his voice in death. He has died for us to make for us a way through the gate of death to life. We are free then now to live in this world actively dead to the world that we want to master but alive to the world that we now seek to serve. We surrender our hopes of mastering this world and making our own life and being the captain of our own destiny. We look now to how our gracious triune God invites us to join him in the service of transfiguring this world. We are free to be vulnerable Weak in this life, to lose even, (laughs) maybe a lot. Free not to care about prestige, possessions, or power, even. To suffer loss, knowing that in the resurrection, in the risen Lord, we are indestructible. We are more than conquerors, as the apostle says. Free to live as if death. Were not. Amen.